of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Then let's read our Catechism lesson together, Lord's Day 31. Lord's Day 31, three questions. Let's read the answers with one voice. Page 42, back of our hymnal. So, Christian, what are the keys of the kingdom? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both preaching and discipline open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. How does preaching the gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to each and every believer that as often as he accepts the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of what Christ has done, truly forgives all his sins. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, 
the anger of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? According to the command of Christ, if anyone, though called a Christian, professes unchristian teachings or lives an unchristian life, if after repeated brotherly counsel he refuses to abandon his errors and wickedness, and if after being reported to the church, that is, to its officers, he fails to respond also to their admonition, such a one the officers exclude from the Christian fellowship by withholding the sacraments from him, and God himself excludes him from the kingdom of Christ. Such a person, when he promises and demonstrates genuine reform, is received again as a member of Christ and of his church. One of the things that can uh, be daunting and uh, sometimes discouraging when you're many decades away from uh, retirement age is meeting with a a financial advisor, going over uh, what kinds of investments you might make. And while you're doing that, you understand that really uh, the financial advisor is the one who, it's his job to to do most of the the cost-benefit analysis. And you really... You just tend to to listen, uh, if you're wise in my estimation, listen to what he has to say and kind of try to conform to uh, his advice. And and of course, that that has all kinds of things to do with uh, actually putting forth into action in terms of how you're going, where you're going to put money in this or that, and how you're going to save. And, And if we may be so crude, we can apply some of those principles to Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is causing us to do some cost-benefit analysis. And I think uh, relative to what he says, as we consider the doctrine of the church, it is good and right to do so and for us to do so tonight. So here are the things that I'd like to consider uh, together as we think about this passage. The, The first is that Peter becomes an example to all the, all of the church in proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, he's the anointed one. And if Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, then we must, we must listen to what Jesus says about the institution of the church, about that fellowship which he creates and which he loves so much. And then as we consider that, we finally consider what Jesus says towards the end of the passage, where he teaches us that our one soul, the one soul that you have, is worth more than the entire world. It's worth more than the entire world. And does that not mean, brothers and sisters, that you ought to adjust your life, you ought to adjust your action, 
your investments, if you will, according to what Jesus teaches us about how blessedness of soul occurs in his name. Now let's consider all of these things together. First is the foundation of the church, which is Peter's confession. Of course, the church spans all of human history since the fall. We can very easily refer to believers in the Old Testament as the church. They're part of God's gathered ones, particularly the New Testament church after uh, the life of Christ and his resurrection. The foundation of the church is what we see here in Matthew chapter 16 with Peter confessing Jesus to be the Christ. As I mentioned, that title Christ really means anointed. The one who has been sent from God, the one who comes from God with a particular job to do and a particular empowerment by the Holy Spirit, an authority to accomplish salvation. So when Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the one that God has sent, he, in a sense, may be saying, I don't necessarily know how it's all going to fit together, and we know that Peter was a little bit in the dark about that, not knowing exactly what to expect. I don't know how this story is going to end or come to fruition, but I know that you are the right person to trust and to follow, to attach myself to, and to believe. I believe that you have been sent from God. Our catechism does really a wonderful job of of talking about this idea of Christ being the anointed one. He's anointed by God the Father, of course, to fulfill that threefold office, prophet, priest, and king, to teach us, to accomplish our salvation, and to rule and reign. We are Christians because we share in his anointing. Through the power of Christ, he gives us the spirit so that we can share in his life. We can share in his resurrection life. And we can know that all of the blessings he has won can be ours as well. In other words, Peter says, you are a safe place, Jesus. You are a safe place, and I want to be here where you are. A couple of things that we think about for our own Christian life relative to Peter's confession. First is uh, that great tradition that we have in the Reformed Church of making profession of faith and standing up in the company of believers And saying, whether it be a covenant child growing up in the faith or a convert coming from outside of the church, expressing within the congregation, I, like Peter, look to Jesus as the Christ. I, like Peter, see him as the safe place, the only safe place. Not only do we do that at that one special appointed time in the Christian life, we ought to do that day by day. We ought to continue going on to do that, confessing Jesus as the Christ, reminding ourselves in our hearts each and every day that he is the safe place. Thus we listen to what he says. Thus we obey his word. And thus when we are given opportunity, we ought not shy away from naming Jesus Christ. We ought to be seeking opportunities to express our faith in him, the blessedness that we believe that we have found in him, And the fact that we believe truly he is the son of God sent by God to show us, to teach us his salvation and to win it for us. When Peter makes this proclamation, he receives this blessing from Jesus. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. 
In the context of Matthew, I think you, you can't really come across that term, blessed are you, that phrase, blessed are you, without thinking, of course, of the, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus lays out these blessings of the kingdom of God. And, and thus, with that ringing in our ear here in Matthew 16, we know that this is a, a kingdom of God kind of blessing uh, that Jesus gives to Peter. And so to receive this blessing from Jesus is to receive an ultimate kind of blessing that only he can give. And so this reminds us or this teaches us that there is no matter more pressing for our souls than to align ourselves with the Christ that we might receive this blessing as well. Not only that, but those who come to know Jesus Christ, those who come into the blessedness of the church, ought to seek others to do so too. That's why we join in the work of missions around the world. That's why we support the advance of the gospel. That's why we seek ways, even little ways, to do it in our own life as well. So here Peter becomes a a fount of blessing, a fount of faith and profession, for us to learn from, for us to imitate, and to hold up as a, as a daily reminder. After Jesus says his blessing, he also affirms that uh, the community of the church will do likewise. Peter was the first one to do this, to explicitly say, Jesus, you are the Christ, but he's not the last. That's the, the good news. We're all here because that is true. That people go on doing the same. And Jesus uh, teaches us then that his church, his congregation, his assembled people will do likewise, but that this assembled people will also have a delegated authority from Jesus Christ. And that, of course, is what we mean when we talk about the church and the authority of the church, and particularly here as we think about the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We understand this metaphor well. It's, it's not hard to understand. A, a key gets you into a door, into a building. Right? You've heard uh, stories. I like reading inspirational stories about athletes who had all kinds of determination, perseverance, and will. And a few weeks ago, sadly, one such athlete uh, was, was killed in a helicopter crash. The reason he had that helicopter was because he wanted to be able to go from his house to the arena to practice his basketball skills in almost no time at all. He didn't want to waste time in Los Angeles traffic. So he found a way to get from his house to the place where he could practice any time of the day or night because he was obsessive about it. Right? You can think of maybe stories of high school athletes who are the same way. Right? They coax the key from a janitor because the janitor gets so tired of having to get up early or stay late that he would lock up and he, here, you have the key. When someone hands you a key to a door or a building, all of a sudden you don't need permission to enter anymore. The key is your permission. It would be absurd if they give you the key and then you have to still call someone to ask if you can open it with the key you already have. So there's authority here given, it's given specifically to the church to open and to shut the kingdom of heaven. This teaches us that uh, there is a necessity to, uh, there's a necessity to joining and being a part of the church. 
The assumption here in Matthew 16 is that there aren't other sets of keys floating around. Jesus doesn't give a set of keys to Peter and the church, and then he gives a set of keys to nonprofit organizations or government entities. No, this is the only set of keys in the world given to the church. The Reformed Confessions put it like this, that Outside of the church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. The confessions put it that way because, of course, God can do anything. And, uh, and he certainly can save someone who maybe, for whatever reason, is not able to uh, join themselves to a church. You may think of the, the thief on the cross when Jesus was crucified. Now, of course, the Pentecost hadn't happened yet, but that is a man who didn't have opportunity to join himself to God's community of people on this earth before he died, but Jesus gives him a blessing, pronounces a blessing upon him. But our confessions say outside of the church there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Why? Because the ordinary way that we we see salvation being worked out on the earth is through this institution of sinners being gathered together under proper government, under proper practice, worshiping on the Lord's Day and keeping themselves through sacraments and discipline. This can at many times uh, be frustrating for people. A lot of people out there who maybe have bad experiences in the church or scarring that's there uh, from whatever happened perhaps in the church. There are Churches that are, have more or less error to them. Churches that are constituted in different ways and have different practices. And sometimes we look across that whole landscape and we feel like even, even coming to some sort of understanding of that is daunting. We can't, of course, address all of those differences tonight or all of those challenges. But we know that where the gospel is truly preached... Where the word of God is revered as God's true word and it is opened up and taught. Where disciples are being made, where the sacraments are being administered. That is the community to which believers must attach themselves. There is no choice when it comes to it. We talk about the kingdom of of heaven being opened and shut. And it's really very simple. We go through those, those catechism questions and answers. There's a lot to it, but really you can boil it down very simply to one idea set in two ways. The kingdom of heaven is to be opened to the penitent, the repentant, and it's to be closed to the impenitent, to the unrepentant. That's really what it comes down to. That when the gospel is preached, it's preached and proclaimed, Jesus has died for sinners. He has accomplished salvation He is a perfect Savior. If you look to Him in repentance and faith, if you are sorry for your sins and you know that you need a Savior, then the the door of heaven is flung wide open. Come right in. Isaiah 55. Come, come and buy wine and milk without, without price. Come, all of you who have no money, come and experience the blessing of God. Come to the God who satisfies. Likewise, with church discipline, The kingdom of heaven is still open. That's something that we often don't think about, but the catechism makes that clear. The kingdom of heaven is opened through discipline if the sinner in question is repentant. It's about restoring a repentant sinner. 
So both the preaching of the gospel and discipline open the gates of heaven to the penitent, to those who are sorry for their sins, to those who are filled with sorrow. Christians oftentimes fall into all kinds of difficulty with sin, patterns of sin. But as they are brought to realize their sinfulness, if they have sorrow over their sin, then uh, those who are given authority in the church can say that the kingdom of heaven is still open to you because you are showing remorse. This is one of the reasons why the church is so necessary for our lives. It, it is a good thing. Sometimes people think, oh, well, that's the, this isn't a healthy way of thinking about it. But when I'm tempted to sin, I should, at least in some sense, be thinking that the community to which I belong, the church, which is so important to me, I, I, I have responsibility to my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I understand that if this sin comes to light, I'm going to have to account for it. I'm going to have to answer both to those entrusted over me and those around me. I'm going to have to face them and realize that I've let them down. That's one of the reasons why God says we need this community of people around us. So the kingdom is opened to the penitent. It's shut to the impenitent. When the gospel is proclaimed and preached, if someone can hear that gospel message and they may say, well, I, I, I think I understand what is going on. I understand the message, but really I, I feel like I'm okay in my own heart, my own soul, my own life. I'm fine. I don't need Jesus. I don't need him. I'll be fine. It's an impenitent sinner. The kingdom of heaven is closed to them. They will answer for that negligence one day. Likewise, someone is in the community of the church. Uh, a sin or something comes to light that requires discipline, waywardness in doctrine or life. And again, what are they? They're impenitent. They refuse to repent. They show no sorrow over their sin. They show no desire to reform their life. Through discipline, uh, the kingdom of heaven can be shut to them as well. We talk about the necessity of the church and uh, most times when people take vows to the, to the church when they join through profession, there is some vow in there. It's in our Psalter hymnal. I've seen it in other churches I've been a part of. There is usually some vow that has to do with I vow to come under the government. I submit to the authority of the government of this church. And uh, sadly, as we look out across the landscape today, that is probably the vow that is regarded as least important or easiest to break, right? A lot of times when church discipline comes into the picture, uh, people say, well, I, I'm just going to all cut and run somewhere else. Because usually there's another church that is ready to accept someone who comes, so as uh, people who are part of the church, we need to make sure that we take these things seriously. Not only that we take our vows seriously in our own hearts, the officers of the church need to fight to make people uh, aware of these things and to abide by them even when it gets difficult. So we see the necessity of the church according to its authority. And the point in all of this is that if Jesus is the Christ, if he is the anointed one of God, if he is our prophet who comes to reveal to us the will of God for our salvation, do we not have an absolute duty to regard all of the things he says, to believe them, to hold them in our hearts, and to abide by them? 
Jesus says, this is where I've placed authority, in the church, in this institution. So don't we have to listen to what he says? We see in that also implied a foolishness of going our own way. There's a foolishness of going our own way. And that's why he brings it in the end of the the chapter into that cost-benefit analysis. So let's think about that just for a few minutes tonight as we close. The value of each of our souls. The value of our souls. Your one soul is of greater value than the whole world. Matthew 16, verse 26. What good will it be For a man, if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul, the implied answer is no good. That that, that will be not good at all. You could could come into possession of everything in this entire world. Meanwhile, we think how often people live their entire life trying to get just a tiny, 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 tiny sliver of the possessions of this world. And yet, do not take the time to think about the eternal destiny of their soul. So what good will it be if a man gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, if you come into possession of everything, you can't trade that to get your soul back. And what Jesus is saying is that if you live without this pronouncement of blessing, without this kingdom of God blessing that Peter experiences here, If you go through life without that blessing, if you go through life disconnected from the the, uh, institution that can give that blessing, the church, which can tell you that your sins are forgiven in heaven, if you disregard all of that, there's nothing that you can, there will be no bargain you can make after this life. The value of our soul is seen in the creation account. God says, We read Genesis 1. We read it a few weeks ago. You go through the entire creation account. Genesis 1. What's the the, the climax moment? It's when he creates man. All of a sudden, we read about this this, uh, conversation that the Trinity has. Let us make man in our own image, in our own likeness. And then God breathes into man life. And he becomes a, a living soul, a living being. As the crown of creation, we see that we have a value that the other creatures of this world don't have. We see our value in the price of our redemption. God the Father sends the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, to redeem us, to seek and to save the lost. If he sends his Son to save us, how valuable must our soul be? The price of our redemption. Our value... The value of our souls is seen in the blessedness of eternal life and that our souls were made for that. We were made to have eternal fellowship with God. We were made to have eternal communion with God. We read in scripture that we have eternity written on our hearts. That's a special privilege for human beings, not given to to other creatures. Eternity is written on our hearts. And that's what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 16. That you, can't, you, you ought not forfeit your soul. Because there's an eternal blessedness that awaits those who look to me as the Christ. The battle against God and Satan speaks of the great worth of our souls. Each and every day, at each and every moment, 
ultimate good and ultimate evil are waging war against one another, doing their best to claim souls. We read that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's on the hunt for souls. Why? Because they're valuable. And then lastly, the joy in heaven and the rage in hell when sinners repent tells us the value of the soul. If angels rejoice when one sinner repents and that soul is saved, does that not teach us the value of the soul? In short, uh, when considering the value of our souls, considering the importance of finding blessedness in Jesus, the connection of our souls to eternity, the connection of the Lord's church to all of these things, can we really pretend like finding this ultimate blessedness doesn't matter? And can we really pretend that the church ought not to be a central part of this, right? Someone who may say, well, I'm okay with Jesus, but I'm not okay with the church. Well, what did Jesus say about the church? He said, this is where I'm investing authority on the earth. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that any particular congregation is going to be the exact answer for everyone on the earth. There's things you need to work through beyond that. But what every Christian ought to be absolutely convinced of is that life in the communion of saints is not an option. The the, the church is not optional in the context of the Bible. It's assumed. Life in the church is assumed in the scriptures. Reverend Madney was telling us this morning that the New Testament itself is nothing but a, a, but a compilation of letters to churches. The point is, if, if that is what the New Testament is, then life in the church is assumed. And certainly we need to regard all of those things. And if we are to be faithful to our Lord, if we are going to love the Lord, then we need to have regard for what he says about his Church Again, that doesn't mean that we need to be overly narrow about defining the church. That we ought to think all churches must look the same in every respect. But it does mean that we do need to seek to be properly counted among those who are in a healthy relationship with the church, serving, giving, worshiping in that context. We thank the Lord for all of these things. We thank the Lord for... Jesus teaching us about this on the earth. We know that when we look back on our own lives, that we see a blessedness coming from our place, from our life in the church that we certainly would not have had otherwise. And so as our standards say, in that church, may I be, I am now and may I always be a living member. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the church that exists on this earth. We thank you that in Christ we can be assured of eternal salvation, that when the gospel is preached and proclaimed with this authority of the keys, that sinners can be reminded that, yes, my my sins are forgiven in heaven. So may your ministers be faithful to that charge, to that call, to always preach and proclaim, as your word has said, this good news of salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Let's close just by singing number 325. Uh, Lord, dismiss us with thy blessing. Lord, dismiss us with thy blessing. Stand together, sing 325.